welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, Deputy Director of the Institute and today's Deputy Podcast Presenter. Some tricky opponents dispatched, a couple of early wins secured, and now it's into the knockout phase. And that's when things get a whole lot trickier. Yes, Rishi Sunak's quest for general election glory continues. So take a break from England's World Cup journey and join us as we assess some of the big challenges ahead for the Prime Minister in Parliament. Unfortunately, the Prime Minister is under pressure from other quarters too, with Dominic Raab, the latest minister, accused of bullying behaviour. So what needs to be done? We'll discuss how Sunak can fix a problem that seems to be coming a pattern. We're going to stick with the civil service and look at its age-old problem of attracting outside talent, a recruitment headache that could have serious consequences. A new IFG report does have some solutions though and we'll be talking to its author. And to discuss all of this, I'm joined by a hat-trick of IFG colleagues who have been as gripped by Matt Hancock's run to the final as they are by England's progress in Qatar. And at this point, I should warn listeners that there are quite a lot more football puns coming. Please send complaints to Sam McCrory, the Director of Comms at the Institute for Government. Welcome, Alex Thomas, Kath Haddon and Alice Lilly. Hi, everyone. Hi, Emma. Alex, admit it, you were relieved that Hancock didn't win on I'm a Celebrity. Well, I just, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's important to go for the, you know, the thrill of the competition. It's not about who wins and loses. It's the it's the taking part, I suppose. The uh, but the the thing I particularly enjoyed was the voting system. I mean, the fact you could, um, you know, this is the this is the IFG angle on I'm a Celebrity <laughs> is that you could vote five times on the app. And I was just looking on the ITV website. Did you, you vote? vote? I did not vote. Oh, I did yeah. not vote. Uh, and you can vote up to six hundred times by by phone. Uh, but then more than six hundred in ITV would consider it undue influence on the on the process. So uh, what electoral system that is, I'm I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, it seemed to do all right by Matt Hancock. Incoming soon, the IFG podcast special on electoral reform drawing on <laughs> I'm a Celebrity and the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, don't get me started on Eurovision. <laughs> um, Alice, I know that you're a mega fan, but how would Gareth Southgate get on in the rough and tumble of Westminster? Could he, could he make it out? I think as a person who has obviously kind of fostered a very inclusive working culture who has a real kind of eye for detail um who sort of is you know responsive to public opinion but not cowed by it able to reshuffle his team to achieve specific goals i mean you can make up your own mind how well that would do in westminster but this this might be the place where i start my campaign to get gareth southgate in the house of lords um which is obviously completely unrelated to the fact that the work i do looks at parliament that's total <laughs> no coincidence yeah and Catherine, what do you make of the uh, the legions of photos showing MPs watching the big games and showing off their football credentials? Yeah, I saw both the Rishi Sunak and the Keir Starmer reactions to the last England game. Um, and obviously it being a match against Wales uh, produced a lot of backlash from some people, other people just backlashing to the, you know, the idea of them sort of showing. Any photo where somebody is like standing up in the moment and cheering is bound to look incredibly awkward. So I've... <laughs> I feel sorry for them and I, I think it's quite understandable that they try and get a good photographer in there and try and choose the best, most flattering uh, photo possible. And I think it's kind of basically fine. I mean, it's more of a cliche when you know that somebody isn't really interested um, and they're sort of trying to show interest. But certainly with Keir Starmer, we know he's a football fan, Arsenal fan, and um, definitely would have been watching the matches anyway and reacting like that. So yeah, I mean, you're always going to get that backlash from the public about seeing um, 
politician doing pretty much anything. <laughs> okay, so let's start with Rishi Sunak's parliamentary problem. Um, a recently crowned prime minister, he's got a healthy majority, a party with one eye on an approaching election. It feels like it shouldn't be that hard for the prime minister to get his agenda through parliament, but is proving to be so. Um, Alice, can you start by explaining where we are in the current parliament time-wise? Yeah, so we're almost uh, three years in. So, of course, we had the last election in December 2019, which feels a whole lifetime ago. Um, Important to remember here that we do not have fixed term parliaments anymore. Uh, So, you know, in the next two years or so, we would expect to see an election. And I guess what this means is you are obviously starting to get into the tail end of the parliament. And what we know is that for the most part... um, the longer a parliament goes on, the harder it gets for government to do things. So that's one of the reasons things are getting tricky. But of course, it's also been a very strange parliament in the sense that really the first two years of it were dominated by COVID, which is, of course, not what Boris Johnson expected when he won that big majority. Um, We're getting towards the business end, but that's going to make things quite tricky for the government. Yeah. And remind us, when is the latest point for a general election and how long does the government realistically have left to get things done? So the absolute latest point would be in January 2025. I don't think anybody expects it's going to quite go that long. Nobody wants an election campaign over the Christmas period. Um, But yeah, that does certainly start to limit um, some of the room for manoeuvre when it comes to getting kind of priorities through. And I suppose the other thing that's affected it here as well is that we've seen so much kind of political upheaval that you've had basically three prime ministers, all of whom will have slightly different ideas of what they want to get done. And so it's now up to Rishi Sunak to think about, I've got effectively two years left. It's going to be tricky. What am I going to prioritise and what am I perhaps going to have to let go? Yeah. And even within those two years, in reality, the time he has to actually get it done is quite a lot less Absolutely. as they campaigning mode. I mean, on actually achieving what they've set out to, Alex, we uh, try to track the Conservative manifesto and see uh, how far it's been implemented. It looks like the government's doing broadly OK so far. Yeah. And the last time we looked at this systematically was uh, at the end of 2021 uh, report that uh, actually Jordan Urban, who's coming up to talk uh, later about um, about uh, opening up the civil service, um, uh, did. And uh, it is it is quite striking that a fairly decent chunk of those manifesto commitments, sort of 55% back then, uh, were either on track or completed. Um, though what we found was that those were the you know the easier ones, the ones that involved announcing money or um, uh, or um, doing the, the more straightforward stuff, and it was the more complicated, uh, difficult. Um, and uh, as you would expect, time-consuming ones that were um, that, that that weren't happening. But um, so yeah, if you if, if you look under the bonnet and take into account um, uh, co- the COVID disruption, as uh, Alice was talking about in the context of of Parliament, um, not uh, not too bad. Uh, that then sort of raises the question of how much manifestos matter, how much voters really uh, judge uh, governments on the success or otherwise of their manifesto. And also this interesting point that the 2019 manifesto has become almost more important over the course of the last few months because it's the thing that gives Rishi Sunak his legitimacy as prime minister. Um, so uh, it's become sort of more of a foundational text. And I expect we'll we'll see uh, more debate over this over the course of the next uh, couple of years as we run into the election, because uh, otherwise what gives, what gives this Conservative government it's it's mandate and this prime minister in particular and kath um, there was a queen's speech back in may but obviously so much has changed since then um not least the monarch and the prime minister uh, so <laughs> indeed and so what's that what does that mean for the government's legislative agenda and you know how much was that 
Boris Johnson's speech um, as opposed to anyone else's? Yeah, um, I mean, I think this is one of the big questions. This is something Alice and I have been talking about a lot um, of how many. You've got a parliament which lasts between general election and then you've got parliamentary sessions and normally they are a year. Um, and we had a king, queen speech. I need to get this right. We had a queen speech um, back in May. We will then have an end to the parliamentary session and a king speech at the time of the government's choosing. And we have mm. in recent years, because of COVID, Brexit, had a few parliamentary sessions that actually lasted quite a long time, um, more than a year. In one case, I think more than two years. Is that yeah. The, yeah. Um, uh, so the big question for them is how many more do you get in? Technically, you could have three if you say ran it a year. So you ran till um, next May, had a mm. um, end of that parliamentary session, New King speech, then ran to the following May in 2024 and then had another session. But that would be incredibly weird. Mm. So we think this is one of the questions the government's got to consider. Either your option is you sort of run it to sort of May or sometime early next summer, um, have a reset moment, you know, Rishi Sunak could lay out his version of um, the uh, you know the speech from the throne, the King's speech, um, and a new set of sort of agendas. Um, but that means getting through stuff by next May um, or carrying it over to the next session. Or you could carry on to say September. Um, and then plan for another session, which could run till the following September, and you have an election in in autumn twenty twenty four, which seems more likely than than Christmas, as Alice says. Um, or you just extend it to whenever the general election does have, which means that it's most likely that there's only this parliamentary session and one other. Um, and that's very tricky for getting a load of stuff yeah. through because the closer you get to a general election, the more distracting that is, the more parliamentary difficulties of, of doing anything, the more time is absorbed by the sort of long campaign for a general election. Um, so it actually really restricts what you can do. Um, you know, they are already looking at what can we achieve as a government when it comes to legislation in that time period. And I guess given that and looking at what was announced in the Queen's speech, legislation that's kind of already on the books, Alice, which bills are likely to be easiest to get through? Are they likely to make progress almost quickly? Yeah, so there's, I think there's about just over 30 government bills that are currently before Parliament in some shape or form. And you know, the majority of those are likely to be relatively straightforward in the sense that they're not kind of particularly controversial. Um, they're just the sort of things that will tick along. And that's where perhaps the biggest set of issues for the government will just simply be around scheduling them and, and making sure there's enough time. Obviously, that said, there are a kind of handful of bills which are bigger and which are definitely politically a lot trickier. Um, and that is something that's going to be kind of harder uh, for the government to do. And I, I suppose, you know, the, the challenge for the government is trying to work out for each of its bills, the kind of importance of getting that bill through politically versus the politics of the bill versus how and when they're going to schedule it. And that's that's a tricky balancing act. Well, let's pick that up and talk about the kind of the current legislative pressure points for government. We've heard um, quite a lot this week, actually, about possible backbench rebellions on issues, including energy, planning, Alex, what's your assessment of where they're going to be running into trouble? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, planning is a really good example because you're getting rebellions from you know from all directions, as it as it were. So you've got the um, uh, those uh, backbench Conservative MPs who want to um, restrict 
in certain circumstances, uh, house building. Uh, and so we're looking to you know, protect uh, the green belt or um, development on uh, on their patch. And there was a uh, you know a pretty solid rebellion uh, on that side. There's also uh, uh, one brewing on uh, from MPs who want to um, promote onshore wind, um, uh, which is controversial question in the Conservative Party. Although if the polling is to be believed, you know, fairly popular um, in the in the, in the country. So uh, that that shows just the the, the sort of polarity of um, uh, of of opinion in the Conservative Party. And I think we're going to see this on all sorts of um, other issues. Um, the online harms bill is the other piece of legislation that is much in the news. And um, we know that Nadine Doris, the former uh, Secretary of State with responsibility for that bill, is not happy with some of the uh, plans that the the government has. Um, I also think there are going to be, uh, you know, as, as ever, uh, you shouldn't forget the House of Lords, there are going to be um, uh, uh, certain bits of legislation where um, even if the government can keep its backbenchers in, in order, it will run into trouble in the Lords. The retained EU law bill that um, uh, puts an expiry date on um, uh, on, on uh, uh, EU legislation uh, is there if Dominic Raab proceeds with his uh, plans to reform uh, human rights uh, legislation uh, that will um, hit all sorts of trouble in the Lords. I think the interesting thing as well with this government, which uh, you know perhaps is taking a slightly less kamikaze approach than um, uh, both the Truss and Johnson administrations, is I think we'll see, we've already seen on the planning stuff, um, uh, pausing or withdrawing or stepping back from the brink on a lot of this legislation. So I do wonder whether one of the themes of the next couple of years is going to be a government that that actually uh, you know tries to make progress and then reverses on a number of these things. So it may be a government that that actually can't do very much over the course of the next couple of years because its political authority has eroded. Yeah, and I think that's the really interesting thing here because at the moment we would say that Sunak is doing the right thing, the thing that Truss and Johnson didn't yeah. do, which is actually anticipating the problems coming up, even when you're just starting to get the noises in the papers about, oh, there's an objection to this, an amendment being put down and that, didn't do the madness of the trust government when they forced that that fracking vote through mm -hmm. and turned it into a confidence vote, but rather said, okay, we're going to pull this, take a bit more time on it. The problem you've got there, given the amount of time you've got left, is if you start kicking the can down the road, A, if the problems don't go away, if you can't find a compromise and it is really a case of either you have to force your, your MPs through because you believe it's the right thing for, for the country or it's necessary for your political platform for the next election, you've still got the problem at some point, or you end up running out of time. Mm -hmm. And as Alex says, you you know, if you keep sort of pushing this stuff down the line, maybe it gets you to an easier position where actually on some of this stuff, Sunak isn't overly enthusiastic about it. He's just letting his ministers carry mm -hmm. on with the stuff that they care about. And eventually, you know, the mess that it's in gives him an opportunity to say, well, do you know what? We ran out of time. We're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't quite solve it. So short-term tactics, sorry, that sounds football. It wasn't meant to be. <laughs> um, but short-term tactics. Got four, four, two, I, <laughs> I think that Sunak is. I could turn this into a proper football metaphor. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Um, I think you know Sunak is thus far getting it right and is doing a lot better than his predecessors on a lot of this stuff. Um, Long-term strategic you know, it's still storing up the same problems. So um, that's and a I think as well on that point about timing, um, Alex mentioned the online safety bill, and that's a good example of where the kind of politics and the timing starts to become a big problem because of the bills that are currently before parliament, 
at the moment, a handful of those, including the online safety bill, are bills that were carried over from the last session of Parliament. And the reason that matters is because you cannot keep carrying over bills. Mm -hmm. So if the government wants to get those things done, they will need to do that by the end of this session, which, as Kath says, we would expect to be in the spring. We don't know that for definite. Um, so, you know, they are, to, to use another football analogy, kind of coming up to the end of injury time on this one if they if they want to get things done. <laughs> and just how damaging will it be for Sunak if this stuff does fall, if he just can't find a way through through the mess? I suppose it, it depends a little bit on what the specific things are that fall. So as Kath said, you know, it might be that Sunak is not as wedded to some of this legislation as his predecessors were. And it's obviously a slightly awkward thing for him that, you know, a lot of this is stuff that he's inherited. Um, at the same time, you know, the Conservative Party will obviously have an eye already on the next election they will both want and need to be able to show to voters that they have made some kind of progress on priorities and on things that are big issues to people, like, for example, housing and planning. So I think that is a kind of calculation they will be having to make. It's also obviously not a fantastic political look for any prime minister who, after a couple of years of a majority is not necessarily able to show a huge amount in legislative terms, having had kind of that, you know, that benefit. And then with the election looming, I mean, look, we've written lots at IFG about how tricky this parliament is to handle. Yes, it's a, a big majority, but it's a parliament that's got used to rebellion, that's mm. fractured in all sorts of ways. But you would expect with an election coming that unity is everything. I mean, Kat, would, does it just but... become, is it, is it this parliament or does it always get tricky when you're 12 years in? Uh, I think it does always get tricky. I mean, we talked a lot about, a lot of people have talked a lot about, um, you know, how governments run out of steam. Um, I think as somebody was talking about the number of um, conservative backbenchers now who have been a minister, mm. uh, which is, I think is quite extraordinary. Um, Look, the problem is we just don't know the kind of trend for Sunak. Um, at the moment, um, in terms of his party, he's certainly a lot more stable than his one predecessor and, and certainly endgame Boris Johnson. Um, but he's not rising up in the, you know, conservative polls aren't going up as a result of it. We've got a bad winter to come. Now, it could be that a period of, of more stable government, Sunak looking competent, public getting to know him, that maybe the polls do improve for a bit for the conservatives, in which case the dynamic is very different. If they start to think, well, maybe we've got a shot at the next general election, then maybe they rally around. If it continues as it is, or indeed worsens. And if some of these issues come to a head and actually they can't control themselves and do end up having massive um, fights um, about some of these issues, then, you know, the risk is that everyone starts to think about their own constituency, you know, party unity does fall apart, you know, it's, it is very different. And there are good reasons for that. You know, every single MP coming to this will have some kind of logic. It's, it's all very well to sort of write a piece in Conservative Home and saying we must all rally together. But if you're constituency is just writing to you constantly about how annoyed they are about something or other, it's going to matter to you. And, so. and there's, I mean, there's just a question, I think, of political appetite as well. And yeah. it's almost, 
Uh, I mean, to, Al- to Alice's point about um, the kind of momentum in Parliament, that probably matters less electorally and more for the kind of mm-hmm. enthusiasm and energy in the Conservative Party. Uh, you know, one of the things that goes to, to what Kath was saying is there's, there's this st- steady stream, and I think it's only going to increase, of Conservatives who aren't going to stand at the next election, and not just people who might be approaching retirement, but the Chloe Smiths, the William Rags, mm-hmm. who are um, you know much much younger, and that does speak to a uh, a loss of a loss of appetite, which kind of also implies a, a loss of discipline and, um, uh, and and coherence. So, I mean, it's a it's a big leadership job for Sunak, yeah. is stating the <laughs> bleeding obvious. Coming. Let's talk about another challenge that uh, Sunak's facing, um, and that's the behaviour, or at least alleged behaviour, of some of his own ministers. Alex, it feels like a bit of a, a pattern is emerging here. What does it say about the state of government? I think it's... it's uh, not been a very uh, happy ship over the course of the last uh, few years. I think it, you know, it goes back uh, in part to um, the allegations of bullying uh, uh, that Priti Patel faced, uh, and I think the signal that Boris Johnson then sent uh, when he didn't accept uh, the uh, investigation uh, into um, Priti Patel's conduct that his uh, independent advisor had 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 done that sent out a fairly uh, clear signal about his view on ministerial behaviour, and I think created some uh, uh, long-lasting concern in the civil service, in particular about uh, their relationship with ministers. Then we've seen more recent um, question marks about Gavin Williamson that led to his resignation, and now uh, Dominic uh, Raab. And we've been talking a fair bit this week about you know what that means for the state of relationships between civil service and ministers and also what it means around um uh you know so the sort of power dynamic if you uh, like kath has this wonderful phrase that i love using which <laughs> i is, stole it from uh, someone you stole it oh no this is oh gosh anyway who, whever came up with this phrase we we, oh, no, we, I'm happy to have it we salute you to me, but um but you, uh, uh, uh civil servants treating ministers as child gods so at the same time infantilizing them but also trying to uh micromanage their uh, their behavior and and there's you know that's one of the dynamics that goes on in you know ministerial uh, offices um but there's definitely does seem to be um a pretty serious uh breakdown in relationships as we've seen with civil servants leaking lots of information about ministers behavior and in part that seems to be because there isn't really a process for dealing with all of this rishi sunak has appointed a, a kc a leading uh, lawyer to uh, look into the specific allegations around rob but the very fact he's had to do that shows the inadequacy of the arrangements so one of the things that i've been arguing is that you need to take a, a long hard uh, look at this you should set up not just sunak appointing a, a, a new ethics advisor as he needs to do and has said he will do um but a much clearer system for uh, looking into uh, the uh, conduct of ministers, uh, particularly when allegations like this, like this emerge, and and, and lean into that system. As uh, you know, we've seen lots of um, uh, discussion around the Metropolitan Police, the London Fire Brigade, the culture in, in institutions, and uh, one of the answers to that is for its leadership to lean into that and say we need a system, we need to sort this out. As you know, Parliament, you know, semi, you know, <laughs> to be determined how successfully, but Parliament has addressed try to address some of these uh, uh, questions with independent complaints and grievance procedures, independent panels to look into all of this um, stuff. So I, I, I do think there's a pretty urgent need to reassure civil servants that the um, structure is there to look into uh, look into these allegations when they come up and to reassure ministers that they won't have uh, clouds hanging over their heads for you know months and, 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 and years. It, you know, it, it's, it's not great for um, Rob Williamson, Patel, uh, any of uh, uh, these people to be facing allegations that are then left unaddressed. Indeed. And given... There is this appearing pattern emerging. Alice, 
What's the role of Parliament in this? You're a keen Parliament watcher. Is there? Do you think the culture in Parliament is part of the problem? I think clearly that there is a problem with the culture in Parliament. Again, we've heard so much over the last few years um, in terms of, you know, very, frankly, very distressing stories about bullying and harassment in Parliament, both kind of among MPs, but also uh, among staffers who work there. Um as Alex mentioned, you know, there have been steps that have been taken to try and change the culture there, particularly the development of the independent complaints and grievance uh, scheme. There are various kind of codes um, that underpin certain aspects of behaviour. Um, and that is a kind of change that is still ongoing. And it, it still, as Alex referred to, has, you know, some questions and kind of concerns hanging over it. But there is at least an effort to change things. But it remains the case that we are having to have these conversations about behaviour, about bullying, about harassment in Westminster on a far too frequent basis. And these are pros, these are problems that are, are not only uh, in Westminster and not only in Whitehall, but nonetheless, there is an argument to be made, I think, that behaviour in government, in parliament, ought to be something that is held to an even higher standard than it is in most other walks of life. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the solutions in a bit more detail. Um, Alex, you mentioned, you know, the ministerial ethics advisor point. Kath, is anybody going to want this job now? (laughs) Uh, Apparently not unless they change the the powers that you've got. Who knew? I mean, who has been writing (laughs) endless reports and pieces saying you've got to change the powers that um, any advisor comes in with? Um, I mean, that's what the reports are telling us, um, you know, that journalists are are getting from within government or, or from people presumably that have been approached. So it seems like they are trying but no one wants it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just difficult to know what they do. They could, you know, they could change the system with some talk about getting a panel of people in so that actually, you know, there are more people to draw on to oversee this kind of work, uh, improving the staff around it. But unfortunately, under Boris Johnson, uh, you know, we saw problems if the advisor is not able to decide for themselves when they initiate uh, an inquiry, if there are problems around when you get to publish that inquiry, how it's published, um, and then that balance between the conclusions that the advisor draws on and what that means for the prime minister, the prime minister's ability to then decide the final call. And, you know, most externals um, agree that this needs to change. So it's kind of, it's a bit, and even Labour, you know, are talking about even more dramatic change. So um, it's a bit difficult to know what the resistance is um, within government to this, because it seems like it's inevitable that it's going to happen and you might as well embrace it um, and be on the front foot about it. Um, So, so yeah, it kind of seals that. And, And it's damaging for Rishi Sunak to keep in this situation because it means that either you've got to bring in you know, one individual for every single um, inquiry you do, or you drag the civil service into it, or you just don't have anyone to to outsource this stuff with. And um, that isn't a situation that any prime minister should want to be in. So, yeah, yet another recommendation. Just change the powers. <laughs> exactly. You can get the full yep. recommendations, www.ifg.org.uk. <laughs> okay, Kath, I am going to sub you out now. Okay. It was a great performance. You gave 110% as usual. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. I, I would like to think that it's a Harry Kane type substitution. I, think, I had a good yeah. game, no goals. Not a Wayne Hennessy. I've, you know, got great, red Great cards. assists, Kath. Yeah, great yeah. assists. Right, cheers. <laughs> Did you practice that one in advance, Alex? <laughs> Apparently, it's football terminology. <laughs>
Okay, so joining us now for his IFG podcast debut is IFG researcher Jordan Urban. Hi, Jordan. Thanks, Emma. Delighted to be here. Glad to have you. Uh, So we're going to stick with the subject of the civil service and look at yet another problem, and that's recruitment, because a new IFG report says the civil service is failing to bring in outsiders with specialist skills, and that is stopping it being able to deliver ministerial priorities. And that report was written by Jordan. Um, Jordan, our report is about porosity. What does porosity mean? (laughs) It's a great question. And we have a a Monday morning all staff meeting here at the IFG, and I, you know, everyone talks about the work they're currently doing. I say, well, I'm doing a porosity report. Everyone goes, what the hell is that? Porosity is, is basically the government's word for, for bringing in outsiders, for making the civil service more porous, um, kind of replaced interchange as, as the, the word du jour. Fab. And what does it mean to bring outsiders in? What do they bring to government that yeah, insiders don't? It's, it's a great question. Um, I think the less intelligent approaches of the past have sort of thought, well, people in the private sector are good. Let's get some of them in um, without actually thinking why you might want them. I think what we found, Alex, is that There are two main reasons why you might want outsiders in government. I think the first is that you can gain access to technical expertise, that it's quite hard to develop Mm in-house. If you look at the, you know, for example, the Treasury, the way that they've brought in people with detailed uh, knowledge of the financial markets, that's the sort of thing can be quite different to to develop in the civil service. I think the second is that you get access to different ways of thinking, people with different professional experiences, different intellectual backgrounds who can give you a bit of a, a different perspective. In lots of ways, great that the civil service has a strong internal culture, but that can sometimes tip into groupthink. The civil service people survey, for example, showed only 55% of civil servants agreed that they felt safe to challenge how things are done. One interviewee told us for the paper that the civil service prizes people who have learned how to speak off a script. And that closes you off to, to new ideas. There's lots of evidence suggesting basically that having more diverse groups of thinkers in the room can improve the way that, that you do things. And how do outsiders kind of fit into government? You talked about, you know, that strong kind of Whitehall culture. Um, do they find it easy to slot into to this system or actually is it quite hard to, to integrate? Well, I think we, we've seen over time that outsiders to the civil service do have higher kind of attrition rates that they do move out of the civil service more quickly. Um, so I think I think kind of the, the prevailing consensus from both people that we spoke to, but also the, the kind of statistics that we've seen is that it is actually something that's quite difficult to penetrate. Interesting. And how long has this been a problem for the civil service? Oh, have they been, been trying to get people in from the outside <laughs> for a long time and failing? It's, it's a great question. And yeah, yeah, they, they have. Um, I, need, I know it's tried to kind of go back to the Fulton report, but it is in there. Um, it's in kind of modernising government, 1999. You've got the 2012 civil service reform plan, the declaration uh, on government reform published last year. It, it's kind of, it's been a long term problem. And I think it's something that outsiders have, have recognised as well. I mean, we've had plenty to say about Dominic Cummings, uh, misfits and weirdos recruitment spree. But I think one of the, the kind of legitimate reasons that that might have been the case is because there was a sense that there were their kind of technical skills that the civil service didn't have um, that, that needed to be there, basically. And it is something that the civil service have tried to get better at. I mean, you look at the development of the, the functions and professions, it's something that the civil service invested a lot of energy into doing. I mean, we give an example in the report. Um, in the mid-2000s, only a quarter of government departments had qualified finance directors. Now, that's something that would be completely unthinkable today. So there has been progress. Um, but that doesn't also mean, you know, there's there's a long way to go. And ministers do often complain they just don't have the technical expertise they need. And, and I think that's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And so... It's something that was mentioned in Fulton. It's been mentioned time and time over. What is stopping the civil service from just getting this done? <laughs> yeah, there are there are quite a few big problems, to be honest, and we identify them in the paper. I mean, part of the problem is there just aren't the right roles for specialists at senior levels. So one interview we call or described how 
the civil service grading system rewards generalists, not experts. I think that's how people feel. Another talked about being a hard cap on people moving up the civil service if they're interested in technical things. And, you know, we, uh, we talked about the report on Twitter earlier today. It's just been published. And that was something that in the comments was really coming through. People did feel that there was this sense that if you were a technically inclined person, you would find it hard to move up the civil service. Um, I think another is pay. So, I mean, obviously the civil service is always going to struggle to to pay what the private sector does. But I think we've reached a point where there's been long-term pay restraint and actually the particularly the senior civil service pay proposition just isn't quite competitive enough to get the people that, that the civil service needs. I mean, an interview he talked about how pay shouldn't be the reason you come into government, but it can be a big barrier. You need to get things up to a standard where the pay isn't derisory. It's actually, it's actually reasonable. And then Finally, just at a basic level, there are some hygiene factors that aren't up to scratch. So it can take you months to be fully onboarded, to get your government pass, to get your laptop. Um, that, you know, isn't something that should be particularly difficult to fix. It just hasn't been. Um, there are plenty more, but but that kind of is a brief pricey. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Alex, uh, you were a civil servant for many years. Uh, what do you make of, of Jordan's recommendations? And are there too many generalists in the civil service? Uh, yeah, well, obviously, I strongly agree with Jordan's recommendation because we, we wrote the report together. So uh, it would be, it would be, it would be a bit awkward if you did. Yeah, if I, if I came out against that now, that would um, yeah, yeah, not be good for team relations. Um, uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I agree with what, what Jordan's um, saying there. I think on the on the generalist point, I mean, this that that word haunts the civil service um, uh, in uh, many respects and uh, has has been a subject of debate for a long time. I think there is there is nothing wrong with the let's not call them a generalist but the you know a, a, a civil servant who has the skills of synthesizing evidence drawing it together making recommendations advising ministers and then helping um, uh, ministers decisions be implemented if that's what a generalist is then great we would argue that um, a lot of those people shouldn't move around as often as they uh, do they need deeper knowledge deeper expertise but but that that that's classic civil service skill of synthesis is um you know is really important but i mean where what the the, the point that jordan's hit on there is that um to really um have government firing on all cylinders you need these deep specialists and the the government the civil service has lots of specialists they've got analysts they've got economists they've got data people, digital people. We're not saying that those people don't exist. But again, the insight that Jordan has there is that um, there are certain fields in particular where you can only really uh, develop um, in a profoundly deep specialism outside government and government should be better at bringing those people in and that would make for uh, make for more um, more effective government and that's a so it's a you know it's 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 a loss to the civil service if uh, there are people who would be you know able and willing to work in government and to deploy their skills but if all these kind of uh, factors whether they're the kind of the existence of the jobs or the the hygiene factors of recruitment and job descriptions and all of that kind of thing um it, you know it's a it's, it's a loss if, if if those are those are obstacles to to getting those people into government Absolutely. And I just wanted to ask when we're talking about the types of people that we might bring in from the outside, is it mainly technical specialists that we think we're struggling to bring into government? Or are there, you know, kind of more broadly kind of generalist outsiders that mm -hmm. should be coming in as well? I guess I'm thinking of things like special units that often have, you know, SARS who are from outside mm -hmm. government in charge. Are they a kind of different quality to the technical specialists? Yeah. And I think there's definitely some value to kind of making the, the kind of the generalist model a bit more porous, um, if you like, and, and kind of giving generalist experience outside government. And that's why, you know, the IFG have talked a little bit about outward secondments and kind of generalists experiencing kind of life outside government as well being really useful. Um, I think though that, that I think 
our analysis suggested basically that it is technical skills that the civil mm-hmm. service really is lacking because as as Alex said, one of the things the civil service is actually very good at is developing those kind of generalists who actually have some very specific governmental skills. I think you touched on a really important point though in the question, which is actually that getting those generalists and those specialists, getting those insiders and those outsiders working together can create a really fantastic working environment. And and as you say, we've seen over the years, I mean, you think back to, you know, Blair's strategy unit, for example, sort of the high point of the strategy unit model, and that was a real insider outsider synthesis something that worked really well. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the first projects I did at IFG was on the Olympics. I remember writing Mm -hmm. something very similar about the government (laughs) Olympics executive. Um, So whilst I've got you both here, Alex and Jordan, you were up in Darlington uh, this week visiting the Treasury's outpost. What did you make of it? How are things up there? Oh, it was was really interesting, actually. We had a a, a very good few days. Um, uh, I mean, the the first point I'd say is actually use the word outpost. It didn't feel like an outpost. And certainly one of the things we heard from uh, people uh, there was that they did feel integrated into uh, the Treasury. In fact, there was a little bit of uh, you know, sympathy for those um, poor people in London who had to deal with um, you know, <laughs> London prices and um, uh, and and uh, sometimes having less access and less um, uh, influence than than those people in the new the new economic uh, campus. So you know, uh, genuinely did not feel like uh, an outpost or something that was you know a, a, a secondary um, office. Um, really interesting stuff about you know I think. Case unproven on how far it will genuinely change policy making. I think there are some really real opportunities uh, there, but um, you know, very difficult to see a kind of clear line between civil servants giving different advice because they happen to be, you know, getting on the bus to Darlington um, uh, from uh, from uh, you know during their commute rather than uh, being in, in in London. But you know, potential there. Um, a lot of uh, energy around uh, around the campus and discussion. Some really interesting questions about the skills you know so bringing you know bringing new dimensions to the northeast uh, and you know a lot of um, enthusiasm from local politicians uh, and uh, community leaders and others uh, in the northeast uh, around the campus but also a little bit of questioning well actually in the in the short to medium term at least is this new campus hoovering up all these skills and people who could be and should you know could would otherwise be working in local authority the nhs public services or the private sector uh, around there so lots of i mean we will we will reflect on this further and uh, uh, and write it up into a bit of a case study. But a very interesting couple of days. I'll miss lots, Jordan. What, what else no, no, not really. I mean, we were just talking about pay. I think one of the really interesting things actually is that even in the northeast, where you would perhaps expect private sector pay and, and civil service pay to be a bit more similar, actually, we we did hear that the civil service was struggling in some places to recruit for for people from the private sector because basically the the remuneration package (laughs) i always struggle with that one the remuneration package was uh, not competitive enough um so i think think that was definitely one thing to note and and really stuck out to us because it wasn't really something that, that we were expecting to hear brilliant thanks jordan and um look out for more uh on this uh on the ifg website soon that's about it for another episode of inside briefing many thanks to alex thomas Alice Lilly, Jordan Urban and Kath Haddon. And thank you to you all for listening at home. You can find all of our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and on all other major platforms. Please do leave us a review. Head to our website, www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find Jordan's recruitment report, Alex's blog and loads of other great IFG content. As always, uh, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live, for the recordings of all our latest events. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Matt Hancock has come home. Let's hope football is coming home too. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great weekend, everyone.